longest message, and uh, you can read it in 10 minutes, but it'll take you a lifetime. And it's really asking a question that's deep, answering a question that's deep in our souls. And part of the question is, what is the good life? What does it mean to live the good life? And the second is, what is, what is it to be truly a good person? Now, maybe you're answering, asking those questions or not. Maybe you can formulate that in your mind that that's important to you. But it is, all, both of those things are important to all of us. For many of us, uh, we're just trying to get by, right? I mean, we're just trying to make it to, to tomorrow. And so we are so busy with just trying to, well, just survive the day. And then if I get tomorrow, that's, uh, that's all right. And so I, we say, I'm not actually thinking about such deep philosophical questions. But we are. Because in our soul, we're not satisfied with what's going on in our lives. Even if we're just living day to day, there's, there's something bigger that's going on in our hearts that's saying, I want something more. Surely, surely, surely there's something more than this. And we are striving for that. and We're looking for it. And so you really are asking that question. Even if you're not standing on a mountaintop with your fist on your, your, your chin like that, we are asking that question, what is the good life and how do I get there? And we filled it in with all kinds of answers. That is just natural to us of how we are going to get from here to there. And then if we push it a little bit further, we, we, we deep down, we want to be good people. And we want to be respected and honored, and we want to, we want to think of ourselves well. And so we often, we're always making excuses for ourselves when we don't find that to be true. Because really, we want people to think that we're good. We want to be good. So here we come to the Beatitudes. Now, the lessons that we learn in the Beatitudes, uh, it's a sermon by Jesus, but the idea has been there for so long. But the people of God have not embraced it. In fact, the idea found in the Beatitudes can be found way back in the beginning. For those who are not as familiar with the Bible, there are there is, in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, we meet some very pivotal, pivotal, pivotal and important characters in the story, the redemptive story that goes through all of Scripture. And those first few characters are called the spiritual patriarchs, the fathers. And these are the ones who are the ones who are interacting with God in the very foundations of our faith to understand what it is to have a God and to be a people and how He responds to His people. And so our very first patriarch is Abraham, and he has been given some promises by God of what, what's going to be like this life with him in this world. And, and in making these promises, he passes down these promises to his sons. And he has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son, two sons, named Jacob and Esau. And so I'm going to, forgive me, but I'm going to go on a little bit here because we need to know some foundations before we even get to the Sermon on the Mount. Because we have Jacob and Esau, they're twins. And so the promise is really going to fall on the head of the firstborn. But the firstborn is Esau. And as he comes out, Jacob is holding on to his heel. Thus he gets this name, heel grabber, which like, is the, their expression for a deceitful person. Like a card shark, like that. <laughs> that's, 
We would say that same kind of thing. And so this guy comes out, and these two brothers who have been actually at war within mom's stomach. Now, I have a grandchild on the way, and there's a little one, just one in there that I'm seeing elbows and feet coming out. But two, well, that's, that's another, another story. And if they're at war, you, that's got to be a very uncomfortable pregnancy, isn't it? So they are fighting within, and once they get out, they're fighting again. And we see that, that Jacob steals the birthright from his brother by, well, swindling him. He's living up to his name. He's deceitful. And Jacob is this terrible character. And sometimes when we read the Bible, we see these characters and we say, well, that's so weird. Why is the Bible encouraging those things? <laughs> the Bible's not encouraging these things. It's saying, this is what we are. Like, here's this guy. And, and, and he is... He is, holding, he, is, he is cheating his brother. And then later on, he not only cheats his brother, but he cheats his parents. His mom is involved to try and trick the dad so that he can get uh, the blessing. Like he's stealing left and right. He's deceptive. And I know inside he's saying, but you know, my brother's an idiot, you know? Like he doesn't even care about this. He doesn't even understand what we're talking about here. He doesn't deserve it, right? He can make a good, pretty good, you know reasoning behind stealing. Oh, he doesn't deserve this. He's going to ruin it. And then, and then when it comes to the blessing, mom's actually the one who got me to do this. You know, like, and if mom, and mom's probably right. I mean, Esau, have you seen the ladies that he dates? I mean, not great judgment. And we're going to give the blessing to him? Like, no. I am, I'm justified. Like, it would be the good thing for me to take this on this knucklehead. And so he does those things, and it brings about great war, even greater war in the family, such that old Esau says, I'm going to kill you next time I see you. And so Jacob runs, and as you know, the story goes, he has an encounter on the way, and then he meets with God, and then he meets with uh, Laban, his uncle. He gets married. Uncle Laban is more of a Jacob than Jacob is, and he tricks him into marrying the, <clears throat> the daughter who is not as easy on the eyes. That's probably the best way we can explain, explain it. Then he has to marry another one. He steals from Jacob. He lies to Jacob. All the, I mean, so it's like he's getting back what he, what he gave. And then he finally says, I've got, I can't do this anymore. And so he leaves. He takes his family under the cover of darkness. And he leaves that place, and he gets away as quickly as he can, because as soon as Laban finds out he's gone, he's going to send the troops after him, and it could be all over. So he goes with all of his possessions and his wealth, which also justify the fact that I'm doing what's right. And as he goes, he leaves, and as he's on his way, his scouts look in the distance, and they find who is ahead of him but Esau. So he's hemmed in between Esau and Laban. It does not look good for our man Jacob. And so Jacob is between truly a rock and a hard place, and he's about to come to, to see uh, Esau. And what are we going to do when we run into Esau? Because last time I saw him, he said he's going to kill me. So he thinks to himself, okay, what's the clever thing to do here? And so he decides, I will bring gifts to him, and I will start with the, uh, the part of the family I don't like and their servants and their animals. We put all those up for it, and then we'll come right behind. And if they start chopping people up, then I can get out of here. That's the plan. Maybe I'll appease them with these gifts. 
And you know, that night he goes across the Jabbok River and he gets away from everybody. And there he runs into this man. We don't know, this mysterious man who's the presence of God in some form. And he wrestles with him all night long, wrestles, wrestles, wrestles. And finally he gets a blessing in all of his wrestling. And then this man of God just goes, beep, and touches him on the hip and throws out his hip. Like wrestles all night, but all the time I could just, you know, one of those. And so Jacob's got this busted hip, and he gets across the river, and he's a changed man. He says, no, I'm now going to go to the front, and I'm going to meet Esau. I'm going to take my, my family, the most important people I'm going to take with me. We're going to walk forward. We're going to meet him. I'm going to ask forgiveness, and he does these things. But as he goes, the whole time, in fact, it says, for the rest of his life, Jacob, what? Got a limp. Walked a limp. Jacob did not walk with a limp before that. This is how Jacob walked before. But now, wherever he goes, he's slowed. Has to have something to, to lean on, right? And he said, okay, from now on, the people of God, God changed his name from deceiver Jacob to Israel. He's going to be the father of the nations of God, the nation of God. And so now Israel is going to walk with this limp. And now all of his descendants, when they come to cook a meal, this part of the hip, they leave alone. As a remembrance, they're not going to consume that because they want to remember what? The limp. Why would they want to remember the limp? It's because they need to know that they are dependent on the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. They will not survive. They will not make it unless they lean on God. So he's saying, I want you to be like that people the rest of your life. Now, the children of Israel didn't get the message. They might know how to cook, right? But they don't know how to obey. And so they didn't get this idea. Now, some did, but the majority did not. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he is explaining. He goes up. Well, let's just read the text. So in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. Kind of reminds us of Moses, right? Went up on the mountain. When he sat down like a good rabbi, a good teacher, his disciples came to him. This would be the 12 disciples, but it would also be the other disciples in the crowd. This would be uh, a time for him to explain and preach and tell them what this good life is, the way that he is going to encourage them to live their lives. And he says, And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were for you. Jesus is now giving them the Beatitudes, we call them, the, the blessed attitudes. What kind of kingdom is Jesus inaugurating here? It's a purely, it's, cur- it's a curious one, isn't it? <laughs> it's not what you expect. And so it's, it's going to take us a little time to work through these, and so we'll spend the next few weeks, next couple of weeks in the Beatitudes, and then we'll go through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And, it, and the, the Sermon on the Mount breaks down like this. There is these attitudes, these blessed attitudes, the Beatitudes, those are the things that, the attitude you were to have. And then he, he then, Jesus begins saying, well, in this situation, that's what it would look like. In this situation, look what it would look like. And try this situation on. So he gives all kinds of different scenarios in which if you have these Beatitudes, that that's what it would look like. And when you read those, I mean, many of y'all read those, you kind of say, what? Like, that's pretty serious stuff here. I don't know that I can do that. In general, our, our world today is hedonistic. We seek pleasure. We seek our desires to be fulfilled. John Piper, great preacher, theologian, he talks about a Christian hedonism. A Christian hedonism is the truth that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Some big ideas there. Let me try that again. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Therefore, if we're going to glorify God as we ought, the pursuit of joy, of this blessed life, is not optional. It is essential. We may not, we, we, may, we not only may, but ought to pursue our maximum pleasure in God. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is the blessed life. As we look through these different beatitudes, and he gives us different atti- these attitudes we are to have, uh, they are not meant as like mechanical rules. They are a way we should look at the world. All Christians are to be like this. Now, we might read this and go, that sounds good for some guy named John Piper, but it's just me, right? (laughs) But this is the way we all, as Christians, should live our lives. And it is the blessed life. Not only is this the way we all should live, but we should live out all of the Beatitudes, all these characteristics. They build on top of each other. Now, as you listen to them, if you try to put a category to them, like, what is it really talking about? Do you notice the first part of each of those expressions starts with loss? It seems like loss, right? The Luke version says, uh, when Luke records it, he says, and Jesus said, blessed are the poor. If you're poor, what does that mean? You're at loss, right? Blessed are those who mourn, 
What does that mean? What does mourn mean? It means you've lost something, right? So all of these are saying the blessed life is when you are at a loss. How many of you think that's the blessed life? Not really. We are only happy if we have. We're always working on having. The Beatitudes say it starts with those who are at a loss. Some who walk with a limp. These beautiful attitudes. The first four of the Beatitudes focus are on our attitude toward God's, and the second four on the attitude toward others. kind of reminds us of the Ten Commandments. This is kind of a fulfilled Ten Commandments. When we use the word uh, blessed, we're see- it, is, it is this idea of seeking God's blessing or approval. You could also say approved are the ones who are poor in spirit and those who mourn. As we begin the study of the Beatitudes, let us realize that if God's blessing and approval means more to us than anything else, even the approval of our friends, business acquaintances, our colleagues, then the Beatitudes are going to penetrate our hearts. If, if you really are loving the things of God, this is going to touch you in your heart. I'll speak to you in deep ways. I'll start with the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. This word poor is a Greek word, patochos. It means to cower and cringe like a beggar. It's the, that's the attitude. Blessed are the beggarly poor in spirit. Oof. Has your attitude like that? If you evaluate your heart for a minute, is that the way that you approach God? Like this? Your spirit is humbled to say, I have nothing unless I have you? Wow. He starts out pretty strong here, doesn't he? (laughs) And it is this poor in spirit that is the beginning and sets the foundation for all of the Beatitudes. It is a poverty that's so deep that a person must obtain his very living by begging of God. Wow. We just need a minute here, don't we? It is a person who is fully dependent on the giving of others, the giving of God to us. He cannot survive. You and I cannot survive with out help from the outside. Another theologian, D.A. Carson, says, poverty of spirit then is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. Haven't you noticed this, though? Haven't you noticed this in your own life? As you've gone through those worst moments, it seems, where you have nothing, whether you are at great loss, you're grieving the passing, of uh, someone that you greatly love, (laughs) the loss of your work, the loss of relationship, the loss of friendship, that when you find yourself in loss and you realize, I I just, there's nothing I can add to this situation that will be of any value, and we look towards God in those moments, those are the moments, aren't they? I had a, uh, a friend 
growing up. And he found himself in, in many of these moments. He uh, stole cars. <laughs> Got a, They found out about that. And the police don't like that. And so uh, he was trying to figure out how he's going to get out of Grand Theft Auto. And uh, he was pretty low. I said, brother, this is the time, man. This is the time. Like, do you see it? He said, you know, I don't want to turn to God right now. I, I don't want to turn to God right now. I want to turn to God when I'm doing well, like when I'm okay. Like when I get out of this, then I'll turn to God because I'll be like, it won't be because I'm weak. Bro, <laughs> you're weak behind bars, don't you see? You see, if you wait until you're in a good position, you'll never come to Jesus. Because that's the very reality. We're in desperate need of Jesus. The world believes in self-confidence, self-expression, and the mastery of life. But Christian followers are called to be poor in spirit. These, this uh, calling of ours, this, these attitudes of being poor in spirit and being humble, these aren't natural tendencies. You know, I, I, I like Keanu, Keanu Reeves. I, you know, he's kind of got that disposition about him, like, he doesn't really care what anybody else thinks. He's kind of do his own thing. And if you kind of kept, kept, up, kept up with him, there's like a, uh, a following of Ke- Keanu Reeves because he's like really a nice guy, it seems. You know, like he, he, he's been fic- you know, pictured kind of off screen while nobody's looking and he's, he's helping a homeless person or he's, you know, he's uh, being an emotional in, in the moment and caring. It just, it, you know, you kind of go, that's a good guy. You know, when we think about that, we look at the Keanu Reeves in the world, we go like, there are good people. But I don't know the condition of his heart. But if we are not desperate for Jesus, if we realize that we are nothing, or don't realize that we are nothing without Jesus, then uh, we're just miserable people. And we maybe, maybe you recognize it, you're humbled by those things, but if you don't turn to Jesus, you don't really have this kind of poverty of spirit. So there are good, good, kind people in this world. But none of what we're talking about today is natural. It's spiritual. You know, the non-Christian, non-Christian is absolutely consistent. He sees the way, uh, he, he, he says he lives for this world. This world he lives for. And this is the only world. And he's going to get all he can. He or she or he's going to get all she can out of it. Now, the Christian starts by saying that this, this world is not his world, per se. He regards this world as but the way of entry into something vast and eternal and glorious. The, you know, the, the, the thinking in that day, and, and oftentimes today, is that the successful, the rich, are the ones who are really blessed. They have figured out the way. They, they understand how to get the best life, and so they've taken it. So we, we read their books, right? We go to their websites. We listen to their podcasts. They have made it. They're doing really well. 
They, they have finally figured something out. We listen to them very long. <laughs> realize maybe they haven't. Because what often happens is those who are able to possess are good at possessing, whether it's knowledge or, uh, or riches or have big bank accounts or have these nice yachts. I don't know what that would be to do with such a big yacht like that, but okay. The possessors then become the possessed. We should not rely upon the fact that we belong to certain families with certain names because of our, we belong to some nation or we have some nationality. That we are good at embracing our number on the Enneagram. Our temperament, our position in life. That we don't rely upon the authority that we wield. The zeros in our bank account, our success in business, our smart investments. That we don't look towards dollar signs and letters at the ends of our names towards acceptance letters, to sports championships and offers. Oftentimes our identities are held in these things such that they control our lives. And its possessors become the possessed. And Paul, Paul living out the Beatitudes, as in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, For we are the circumcision... That means the true followers of God who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though <laughs> I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Sounds a little proud, proud doesn't he? Circumcised on the eighth day, that's the law of Pharisee. Sorry, uh, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I'm the guy. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. For those who have such an attitude, who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you want to be satisfied in life, if you want to know what it's all about, start with be poor in spirit, reliant on him. Always walk with the limp. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
This is a little trickier one here. I guess they're all kind of tricky because you have to kind of understand, what, are, what do you mean by that? You mean if I cry all the time, if I'm depressed and sad, I think there's something greater here. And Paul, Paul in, in Romans chapter 3, talks about the condition of men's heart and a few women as well. 3 verse 10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Am I a good person? The answer is no. You are not a good person. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruined in misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Mourning. Our mourning is a mourning over our sin, our own sin and the sin of the world. There is, we mourn because there are, there's no righteous one except for Christ. Our, our throats are open graves. Our words speak such terrible things, such that we'll see in the Sermon on the Mount. You say of someone, you fool, you've killed them in your heart. Murderer. Their feet are swift to sh- shed blood. They're not life-giving, but life-taking. I don't think the Bible here is telling us that we should walk around with the sullen faces when we're talking crying like this. But also, we have to be careful not to walk around kind of like not aware of what's going on in the world, right? Everything's fine, you know? Keep going. It's okay. Just smile. Be positive. Have you heard that before? Be positive. Think positive. Positive things happen. Be positive. That's not right either. This morning means that we have a clear view of reality. A clear view of reality. How things are really working. We recognize that we are sinners. That we can see the sin around us and we can call it as such. But instead we are a people who are amusing ourselves to death. We don't know when is a time to mourn and when there's a time to celebrate, like Ecclesiastes says. Mourning doesn't mean depression. You know, they actually thought Martin Luther was insane, many people around him. Because as he started really applying the Scripture to his life, he saw that he was a dead man, that he was a horrible person. He would go back and confess and confess and confess and, and remember sins, and he would spend all of his time mourning his sin. And they thought, dude, you have lost it. He had such a sober view of what life is really like, his own sin and the sins of others. And it is not until he had faith that he understood that he is relieved of those things. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be We have to come to that reality to understand clearly how bad things are before we can realize the forgiveness of God and how good it is. 
Church, let us not be intoxicated by our daily feed. Your life is from one clickbait to the next. You ever sense that? Like, oh, 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 oh. Without sober judgment. We, we studied first Peter and he kept saying to have sober judgment. Be sober-minded. Church, let's have a sense of perspective. What is the world really like? If we keep searching and grasping at all kinds of things and miss that we, we were grasping at, well, it's Ecclesiastes, the wind, smoke, at nothing, at vanity. We as the people of God and the Beatitudes are called to be those who have a correct evaluation of the world, of our own sin, of God's judgment, and His redemption. Woo, that's good stuff, isn't it? The more aware we are of our sin, the greater is the grace applied to us and more how satisfying it is. Church, let us be sober, discerning, and not wasting our lives on trivial pursuits. As we close today, and we um, just, I mean, we got the little sample plate. <laughs> the hors d'oeuvre tray went around, Sermon on the Mount. And they look like little pieces, like I lost something, but you taste them, and they're delicious, aren't they? As we listen in on what this good life is, I pray that your hearts would be open, that you might uh, consider what it is to be poor in spirit. You know, uh, as old uh, Jacob, Israel, ran up to Esau, well, hobbled, right? He bowed before him and asked for his forgiveness. What he received was a brother. And the Lord made Israel into a great nation. Let us learn to walk with a limp.